The scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 15. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Well, good morning again. How are we doing this morning, church? I'm all right. Maggie's in Florida. And uh, Araya only escaped twice earlier in worship. So, pretty good. Pretty good. Why are you here this morning? Last week, we talked about signs of life, evidence that something is living and evidence that our own faith in God is alive. But there's more to life than just having a certain set of characteristics. It's one thing to be alive. It's another thing to be living, living for a specific goal. It's one thing to be alive. It's another thing to be living with a purpose. Throughout the year, we spent uh, time in and out of Acts considering what it means to be a witness of the gospel, a witness of the truth, a, a Christian. As, as we've seen so far in Acts, the early church was a community that was led by the truth. What was happening, Jews in that day who used to believe in God were now hearing about Jesus and they were being baptized. And as we saw last week, this truth, the only truth, the truth about Jesus wasn't just for the Israelites, it was also for the Gentiles as well. And as people come to know the truth and are baptized, they're receiving the Holy Spirit and their lives are actually changing. There were visible signs because people were being saved. What about us? Does the church today, do our lives look like people who have been saved from our sins? Because our witness, the way that we are living our life, is declaring something to people around us? Are we declaring a sad gospel, one that feels more like obligation maybe than liberation? Or are we declaring absolutely nothing at all? As we'll see again in Acts uh, this morning, the early church, their witness was shaped by their life because their life was their witness. The truth wasn't hypothetical, it wasn't metaphorical, it was real. And because they believed it, and because they were, and this is important, they were gathering together to share in what they believed, to celebrate it. It was visible to those who saw them. And that makes a lot of sense. Any of us have had these great spiritual high experiences, uh, um, some people were just at camp last week. You know, we've gone to youth rallies and Christian conferences. We hope that the excitement about the gospel, the grace of God can be visible in those places. But what about the rest of the time? What about the more isolated moments in our life? 
What about the more worldly places of our life? Is our excitement for the truth visible there? Or what about when trouble comes in our life? What about when frustration in real life starts to set in? Is our excitement for the truth still visible there? Multiple times in Acts, we see real life hit the Christian movement. But guess what? It continues. And more than just continuing, more than just pressing on, it flourishes. The Christian movement hits this resistance, and it explodes. Why? What were the Christians doing? How were they responding to this friction of the real world with such tenacity? I hope, as you join me in Acts chapter 11 this morning, we can find out. Because our witness should be no different than theirs. Our community, our church, our body of believers can and should have the same visible characteristics that they did. Because we are people, if we're Christians, that have been led to life. So last week, we worked through the beginning of Acts chapter 11, where the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem confront, uh, confront the Apostle Peter, who took the gospel to Gentiles in Joppa. While there was this initial resistance to these Gentiles, these non-Jews becoming Christians, the evidence spoke for itself. These people knew Jesus, and they had received the Spirit, and their sins had been forgiven. So far in Acts, the gospel is moving north up the map, and as we're going to continue in Acts 11 this morning, the gospel continues to move north. And as it moves, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians alike begin to converge into this amazing community where, as we'll see this morning, they're actually called Christians for the first time. Because their resemblance of Jesus Christ was evident. Let's get back into Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Anisha and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews, but they were some of them, and like Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, we're moving around the map a little bit. Hopefully I can help us follow what's happening, even though Maggie could probably tell you that world geography is my worst category on Jeopardy. These verses tell us that the gospel has made its way to Antioch. Antioch is significant to us for many reasons, but the first thing that uh, I want to highlight is that the persecution that's referenced is in Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Samaria would be Antioch. We worked through Acts chapter 8 several months back. But as a reminder, Christians are beginning to be persecuted for their faith for the first time. Some of them are being murdered, imprisoned, and many of them are fleeing Jerusalem for fear of their life. Where did they go when some of them fled? Well, some of them went to Antioch. And even though persecution came quick for the Christians, their message doesn't stop in Jerusalem. Even though they were fleeing, they continue to create new opportunities to display their message. And that means in Antioch, where we'll find them this morning. 
But when we think about their ability to share the gospel, their relentless drive, why did the message not stop in Jerusalem? What secret formula did they have to keep the gospel going? How, how can we try to do the same thing? Because there's a lot of really frustrating things in this world that make us just want to hold our hands up and say, I don't, I don't know anymore. Antioch was a city in Syria. Syria, you might know, is significant to the Jews, the Israelites, as one of the nations who attacked towards the end of their uh, uh, time in the Promised Land. It was the nation of Babylon who dealt the final blow, leading Israel into exile, but Syria was responsible for attacking first and weakening and undermining the already split nation of God's people. And in exile, the Israelites in the Old Testament are separated and scattered, and and they don't have a place to call home. And so here in the book of Acts, where does the gospel of Jesus Where does the gospel go? Well, it goes to the very places where Israel was previously scattered in the Old Testament. It goes to Antioch, where again, they are persecuted and scattered and separated. It goes to Syria, one of the places that was instrumental in bringing down God's nation just a a few generations earlier. And And when Jerusalem gets word that the gospel has found itself in Antioch. They send Barnabas to help teach. And this is what Barnabas finds when he arrives in verse 23. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus Uh, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Before we get into what Barnabas actually saw, I think it's a really interesting note that Barnabas goes to Saul, who would be the, the Apostle Paul, to come and teach these people in Antioch. The reason that Christ followers, the reason that the gospel is in Antioch in the first place is because Saul was persecuting Christians. And again, it is Saul, Al Paul, who's going to play an important leadership role in the church in Antioch. It's a good reminder for us that there's no place, no person, no situation, no environment that is out of bounds to be used for God's glory. Back to Barnabas, what does he see when he arrives? It says he saw the grace of God. I've wondered what that might have looked like, a grace of God that is visible to see. What did Barnabas see when he arrived in Antioch? Maybe he saw Christians loving and caring and taking, uh, taking care of each other in a manner that Greek and Roman welfare programs weren't weren't able to. Maybe he saw them being together just to be together because they realized that being brothers and sisters in Christ made them more than just being fellow human beings. It's possible that Barnabas saw people who were hungry and thirsty to learn more, to know more about God and about Jesus and about this life 
that they'd found. I know for a fact that he saw Christians who were coming together from all walks of life, people who were soldiers, who were farmers, who were artisans, who were parents, who were widows, who were children, who were slaves. They were coming together because they were Christians, because they had something in common. It wasn't just a community group or a social club. They were Christians with a steadfast purpose, what it says in Acts 11. And their steadfast purpose, the reason that they were coming together was evident. It was visible to Barnabas. He could tell why these people were coming together. We talked about signs last week and about how circumcision was a sign of the covenant was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. Christians had found life through Jesus, and there were signs. There, were, there was visible evidence that these people had come to life, signs of how their families were being shaped, how they were spending their time, how, were they, how they were devoting themselves to Scripture. Another sign that they were Christians was how they cared for other people. And continuing in Acts 11, verse 27 now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples in Antioch determined, every one of them according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. One sign of them being a Christian was their was their willingness to serve others. And they hear that there is a famine that's coming. And so what do the Antioch Christians do? They send relief to their Christian brothers and sisters back home in Jerusalem. The same Christians who just a chapter ago, as we talked about last week, weren't okay with these Gentiles becoming Christians in the first place. Even in uncertain times and uncertain places like here in Acts 11 when God leads people to life there should be signs there is evidence and when, Barb and when Barnabas goes to Antioch he sees the grace of God and he could see why they were ga gathering together he could see their steadfast purpose so how did they do it how, despite the persecution, despite them having to relocate to new places, despite what was going on, how did they keep the gospel going? How did they make the gospel spread even wider? We need to remember that the good news of Jesus isn't tied to a location. It isn't tied to a building. In the Old Testament, I talked about exile earlier when the Israelites were taken into exile, one of the worst parts wasn't that they had to leave their homes, and it wasn't that they had to live as pseudo-slaves in Babylon. The worst part about being in exile was that they were away from God. They were away from the temple. It actually says that the Israelites saw the Spirit of God leave the temple. Now in Acts... Through the mysterious power of the Holy Spirit, Christians are staying alive and living and thriving under persecution because God's not in a place. 
He's a part of the church through the Spirit. And as a community, these Christians in Antioch are sharing in the Lord's steadfast purpose. The steadfast love of the Lord is a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament. We sing a number of hymns about it, um, even today. Uh, it comes from the Hebrew word hesed. It's used many times to describe how God feels for his people. It's used at, at the mountain when God is giving laws to his people, establishing his covenant with Israel, creating this covenant relationship with the Israelites. The term hesed is used in the Psalms all throughout as writers are rejoicing God's great mercy and compassion for his people and how people, how good you feel when you experience God's love and mercy. But it's also used during times of great tragedy, like even when God turned his back on his people. Jeremiah the prophet famously laments about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel's time in exile. And he says that God turned his own bow against his people. This is a, a really sad scene in Lamentations. And near the end of this lament, he declares this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is the Lord's faithfulness. When Barnabas sees the Christians in Antioch in Acts, he sees the grace of God, he sees their steadfast purpose, because these people understand what God's steadfast love means. They understand what God has done for them. They understand that this world is not their home. They understand that Jesus didn't die on the cross so that they could have a better life. Jesus died on the cross so that we could have life. Our purpose now as a church should not be what it once was. When I think about what our purpose is, why, why we come together, why we do all of this, the reason we gather, the reason we sing, the reason we pray, the reason we devote ourselves to Scripture, is it because we think we're supposed to? Or are we doing it because our faith is alive? There are a lot of, there are a lot of reasons that people feel like they should go to church. Maybe it's during a rough season in life, someone is sick, or there's a big change in your family, and you feel like you should go to church. Some might feel like they need to go to church because they haven't been in a while. Has it been three months already, six months? Happens quick. Others will go to church because it's Sunday. This is what we do. This is what we've always done on Sundays. Now, don't get me wrong. Whatever reason you come to church, I'm glad that you do. Because Christians need to be gathering together, praising God, sharing in communion, and having fellowship with other believers. Honestly, we need to be doing it more. We need to be finding more opportunities to do that. There are a lot of reasons that people 
find themselves in a church, but if we only ever go to church because we need it, or because it's been a while, or because we think we're supposed to, then all we're doing is going to church when we're called to be the church. Whatever brings you to church the first time or the second time or the third time, that's, that's great. But don't let that be the reason we keep coming back. Because that purpose won't last. Our purpose now should not be what it once was. As we mature in our faith, hopefully God is moving, shifting in our minds closer to the center of our lives. When we first become Christians, we're probably really excited about what God has done for us in forgiving our sins, and rightfully we should be. But if that excitement never turns into, now what can I do for God, then we need to ask ourselves, are we really living? When I think about a community in Acts, in Antioch, where Barnabas travels, it's amazing to imagine what that community must have looked like to where they are described as having a visible grace of God among them, a visible, steadfast purpose. I hope the same could be said of us. It's just something for us to think about. Before I offer the invitation this morning, I'd like to leave us with a couple of questions to help us think about what our purpose is. Regardless of what persecution the early church was encountering, their commitment to the cross didn't waver. Are there things in your life that make you waver? Maybe it's being in a certain friend group or a work environment. The early church Christians were devoted to the word and they were devoted to their community and their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And even when there were other Christians, other brothers who opposed them, well, they responded by serving them, by giving. Are we devoted to studying the word with our brothers and sisters in Christ? If we're not, what's keeping us from doing that? I'm not proposing that we have a checklist Christianity, you know, if you you check all the boxes, then you're good. But there are signs of life. Regardless of what happens out there, if the church doesn't have a steadfast purpose, well, we might waver, and we might, we might grow weary. We heard earlier, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, I'd like to read it again. Therefore, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed and strive for peace with everyone for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The you in that instruction is a plural, you know, about plural words, multiple people. It means you all. You all do this together. Being a Christian isn't about being the best you that you can be. That's a poor purpose. That's a weak purpose. Being a Christian is about living, striving together with other Christians to be holy. And if we're doing that, if we're coming together, devoting ourselves to a holy living and a holy community, 
the grace of God will be visible. That's a steadfast purpose. That's one that when our world gets frustrating or seems to be turning against us, we will be pulled closer to God and the gospel will flourish. There are a lot of noble purposes out there in this world that you can find in your life. Maybe you have found purpose in your job that's, that's very fulfilling. Maybe you found purpose in your family. But there's no greater purpose than us trying to be as holy as God is holy. It's what we were created to do, and we were not created to do it alone. If you're not a Christian, I'd strongly encourage you to commit your life to Christ. You do not need to bear the weight of your sins anymore. If, if that's something that you need to do, please let us know. But if you are a Christian, I hope that we can recognize the difference between life and the difference between living. If you found life in Jesus, but along the way, your knees have grown weary, it's time to recommit. Because no matter the situation that we find ourselves in, God's love for you remains steadfast. We need to commit to sharing in the grace of God with our brothers and sisters in Christ and spend significant time opening scripture with other Christians. If you have any aid, whether it's in person or on Facebook, I hope that you make it known. But I'll leave you with this. Our faith is not some checklist where if you do all the right things, you're good. But if we are truly living, then we'll be people who long for the things on that list. The items on the, on the list are not what saves us. That's not our purpose, just doing the things. That's not why we're here, just because we're supposed to be. Our purpose is that we would be the people that God created us to be. If your faith is hurting because real life keeps getting in the way, the problem is not Jesus. The problem is your purpose. It's your priority. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we could be marginally better people, so that we could be better people than the world around us. That's a weak purpose. Jesus died so that you could have life and life in abundance. If you have a need this morning, I want you to make it known right now as we stand together and as we sing.